Did you happen to misplace something today? What about, what about yesterday or earlier this week? You know, something like, like your keys or sunglasses. Or maybe, maybe you misplaced something even more important than that. Maybe something like your wallet or your phone. Maybe even a kid, right? <laughs> have, you, have, have, you mis, have you misplaced something this week, any of you, right? If you've misplaced something recently... No, you are not alone. A recent study discovered that the average adult misplaces nine things a day and spends an average of 15 minutes looking for lost items. Is that true of you? It's true of a lot of people. But why? Why is this the case? Well, according to the study, we misplace belongings because, quote, we fail to activate the part of our brain responsible for encoding what we're doing. The hippocampus part of our brain is responsible for taking snapshots and preserving the memory in a set of neurons that can be activated later. We lose things when we do not have a clear reference point of when or where we put down objects, the most common being items like our keys or glasses, right? I mean, how many of us have lost or misplaced a pair of sunglasses, right? right? Yeah, I see that hand, right? What about an umbrella, right? I got umbrellas all over the city, okay? <laughs> the truth is we can, we can lose or misplace things, can't we? Indeed, we can sometimes misplace up to nine items a day. But you know what is arguably the most valuable item we can often misplace? Our affections. That is, we can place it where it ought not be. Look, misplacing your sunglasses might force you to squint on a sunny day. But misplacing your affections, that can produce far more disastrous results, which is precisely why we need our text of study this morning, Psalm 49. Three weeks ago, we began a short study in the book of Psalms. And one point that we've been hammering home week after week is that the book of Psalms is not a random bag of marbles, but instead it's a fine woven tapestry. That is, this book has been very carefully put together. And you'll recall that the Psalter, it's broken up into five books. Each book has an author or set of authors, as well as a narrative or a story that connects to the overall storyline of Scripture. Well, this morning, we're going to study a psalm from book two. The book, this book, contains psalms from another set of psalmists, and that is the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah are the authors of seven psalms, 42 and 43, as well as psalms 44 through 49. 
Now, Korah, you remember, was the priestly figure who tried to assert himself above Moses in number 16. Do you remember this? However, his plans failed, (laughs) to put it mildly. And in act of God's judgment, the earth opened up and swallowed Korah and all who belonged to them. It was a It was a frightening display of God's power. And if you haven't read it, it's it's worth reading there in number 16. Korah tried to assert himself over God's anointed, and God devoured him and all who belonged to him. Yet by God's grace, some of Korah's offspring were spared. And in time, the sons of Korah, they became temple gatekeepers during the time of King David. You can read about them in 1 Chronicles 6 and 26. And before we we get into our text, I just want to say a couple quick things here. And first is, their presence, the son of Korah's presence in God's temple is not insignificant. And you know why that is? It's because their presence is a testimony of God's grace. You see, the sons of Korah, the the author of these seven psalms, they remind us of this important truth, and that is children are not defined by their parents, but by their God. Amen? And the sons of Korah faithfully served as priests. Yet they're not the only authors of book number two. There's also Asaph, who, guess what? He was also a priest. What I want you to to understand before we look at this text is that book two, it has a priestly theme to it. And this makes great sense because even though David never built the temple, he did organize the priestly leaders in the temple. In fact, David is shown wearing a priestly ephod in 2 Samuel 6 when the Ark of the Covenant is brought back into Jerusalem. Remember this? And then in 1 Chronicles 23 through 26, that passage recounts David's efforts to prepare the priests for the temple. And this priestly element explains something of the focus in book two, especially the change in focus to not just the people of God, but to all people in the Gentile nations. And as you're going to see, that's how our psalm begins. Psalm 49 is an invitation for everyone, not just Israel, to hear what the sons of Korah have to say. So if you haven't already, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 49. That's page 472 in that paperback Bible in the seat in front of you, if you need a Bible. And let us learn together the good wisdom that the sons of Korah have for you and I today. All right, follow along with me as I read Psalm 49, verses 1 through 20. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And they write this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They say this. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. 
The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the liar. Now notice how he begins. He's about to say there's wisdom that he has, and this wisdom is for all people. Low, high, rich, and poor. No one is excluded from needing this wisdom. And as you're about to see as we work through this text, there is a riddle that he's going to solve for us. Look at what he says there next, beginning in verse 5. He said, Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? He's describing these wealthy people that are around him. Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. So, so here's, here's the situation. He's experiencing adverse times. He's experiencing hardships. But not only that, he's surrounded by what kind of people? Poor or wealthy? Wealthy people. And he's going through a hard time. He sees the, these wealthy people and he is tempted to set his affections on the pomp and glory of wealth. That's his struggle. That's our struggle. But he doesn't. He does not set his affections on the pomp and glory of wealth. And you know why? Because he speaks truth to himself. Look at what he says there in verse 7. And let us have receptive hearts to what he has to say. He says, Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations, though they have called the lands by their own names. Now, the, uh, the Hebrew for that first line of chapter 11 literally reads, within them, their houses are forever. The idea being that in their mind, they're speaking to themselves, the, the wealthy, that you know what? This wealth is forever. My house, my riches, my comfort, my ease, that's forever. But notice what the psalmist says next to contrast what they're thinking in their hearts and their mind. Verse 12, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. He's talking about those who put their trust and affections in riches. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. He says this, like sheep that are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. So, so notice the contrast that the author is presenting. He begins by saying these people who value, who are awed by wealth, he reminds them that their wealth cannot purchase redemption. But notice who can and does purchase redemption. Who does the psalmist say? This is the Sunday school answer. Who is it? 
God, thank you. Yes, God. God, right? He's putting a contrast here. He will receive me. Verse 16. This is the next, the first imperative since the invitation for us to listen to him. He says in verse 16, be not afraid when a man becomes rich. Literally, be not overawed. The idea being, don't be enamored. Don't, don't have a, a fear of respect that you would desire the wealthy. He says, be not afraid or overawed when a man becomes rich. When the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you may get praise when you do yourself do well, his soul will go to the generations of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, the understanding being the counsel this psalmist is giving us. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Amen and amen. This is God's good word. In John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress, there's this section where Christian and his companion, Hopeful, they come upon a hill called Lucre. And on this hill, there is a silver mine. And the book, the book describes the ground near the entrance of the silver mine as being unstable and very generous or very dangerous. In fact, the book also says that many pilgrims have injured themselves or even died in this mine. Well, as Christian and Hopeful are passing by the mine, they meet a man named Demas. And Demas invites them to do something. You know what he invites them to do? Demas invites Christian and Hopeful to turn aside from their journey towards the celestial city. That is, he tells them to get off the straight and narrow path and instead join him and come work in the silver mine. And why does he invite them to come and to work into the silver mine for this reason? So that they could become rich. Here's a picture of Demas enticing hopeful and Christian in the front of the silver mine. In this passage, you know what Demas was doing? He was tempting them to set their affections on the glory that comes from wealth. In faith, we face the same temptation today. This is why we need the wisdom of this psalm, for we you know what this psalm poignantly exhorts us to do? It exhorts us to do this, and that is make God your wealth, not wealth your God. Make God your wealth, not wealth your God. That is, don't misplace your affections on the pomp and glory of wealth. Don't listen to Demas. No, make God your wealth. That is, make God your greatest treasure. Have your affections set on Him, 
not money. Now, this is not new information for you. <laughs> we all know this. However, as the Puritan Thomas Manton has insightfully pointed out, saying this, yet really getting it, are two completely different things. Listen to what he writes. He says, and it's the old English, so just bear with me. He says, As he that speaketh good words of God is not said to trust God, speaking bad words of worldly riches doth not exempt us from trusting them. There is a difference between claiming, declaiming as an orator and acting like a Christian. So how can we act like a Christian in regards to wealth? How can we act like a Christian in regards to money? Well, I think the sons of Korah show us, as you probably noticed, this psalm is absolutely consumed with reasons why you ought to make God your treasure, God your wealth, and not wealth your God. And there are actually three reasons that the sons of Korah highlight. And these are given faith. These are given for all people. And particularly the redeemed. So that we who belong to God might be Christian when it comes to money. And the first reason is this. Make God your wealth, not wealth your God. Because wealth cannot purchase redemption. Look again beginning in verse 7 through 9 and then verse 15. He says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. And then go down to verse 15. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Wealth cannot purchase redemption. Ambrose Bierce was an American short story writer, a journalist, a poet, and an American Civil War veteran. And in his book, The Devil's Dictionary, Bierce defines a mausoleum as, quote, the final and funniest folly of the rich. Wealth might buy you a huge burial site, but what it cannot buy you is redemption. And you know why? Because as verse, makes, verse 8 makes clear, the cost is way too high. Because notice what this payment secures. Look at verse 9. As verse 9 states, the price under discussion would enable everlasting life. That is, it would buy deliverance from the pit. That place of destruction where the dead are punished for their sins. You see, friend, as the rest of Scripture makes clear, our sin has earned us something, and it earns us God's judgment. 
Please hear me, all of us, we owe God because of our sin. That is why the price is to be offered to him. Notice what it says there in verse 7. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God. God is the one who needs to be paid. The price of his life. However, friend, please hear me. Mere money, which God has no need, will not satisfy his wrath. And this is bad news. Yet notice, whereas money cannot redeem, God can and does. And how does God redeem sinful people like me and sinful people like you? How does he forgive them of their transgressions and sins so that they might live forever, as verse 9 states? Friend, God redeems sinner through the work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? You see, the sons of Korah are absolutely correct. Redemption is costly. And you know what it costs? The price of our redemption was the death of God's own son, Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the full wrath of God. All of us are owed for our sin. As our hymnody reminds us, Jesus paid it all. Then three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating sin and dead, and proving himself to be who he claimed to be, the Son of God. Our salvation has been purchased. We've been redeemed. We've been ransomed as Christians through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Jesus himself says in Mark 10, 45, he says, for even the Son of Man, referring to himself, came not to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Apostle Peter picks this up in his first epistle when he writes, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. And how were we ransomed? Not with perishable things. Notice, the very things those who set their affection on wealth crave. We weren't redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, Demas but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And friend, this is what makes the Bible such good news. Because please hear me, for those who turn from trusting in their own righteousness and instead trust what Christ has done on their behalf, they are saved. They have forgiveness of sin. They have eternal life. They have God as their father, not God as their enemy. They have salvation. And friend, before I go on any further, can I ask, is that true of you? Have you come to a point in your life where you understand that you stand underneath a debt you cannot afford? And then have you gone all in trusting the work of Jesus as sufficient to redeem you from an eternity of suffering in hell from your sin, for your sin? For those of you who are Christians, we can often lose sight of this truth, namely that the pomp and glory of wealth does nothing to help our eternal state. If anything, it worsens it. So this is why I exhort you, this text exhorts you, make God your wealth, meaning make God your greatest treasure, not wealth your God. Why? For wealth cannot purchase your greatest need, 
and that's redemption for your sins. But then second, make God your wealth, not wealth your God, because wealth cannot prevent death. Look at how plainly this is stated in verses 10 through 14. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish, and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations, though they called the lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the past of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. The Russian writer Leo Tolstoy has a story entitled, How Much Land Does a Man Need? It's about a man who keeps longing for more and more land. Finally, he strikes a bargain for 1,000 rubles that he can have, listen, all the land he can walk around in one day. For $1,000, all the land he can walk around in one day will be his. But here's the catch. He must be back at the starting point before sundown. Or he loses his money and the land. So the guy, he accepts it, and he starts off early. And as the day goes on, greed drives him to keep going just a little bit farther. I'm just going to go for this path over here. There's a nice piece of land. I'm going to go over there. Well, finally, he realizes that the sun is getting low. So he starts to turn towards the starting point, and he picks up his pace. But as the sun drops lower in the sky, the man's like, you know what, I need to start running. So he starts running. He's running, he's sweating profusely, his heart's pounding. And just as the sun is about to set, he sees the finish line. So he gives it everything he got. He sprints up the hill as fast as he can, and he crosses the line just as the sun sets. However, the moment he crosses the line, He then falls to the ground and blood spurts out of his mouth. He dies. His servant then digs a grave just long enough for him to lie in and buries him. And Tolstoy concludes the story with this line, quote, Six feet from his head to his heels was all the land that he needed. Now think about, for a moment, that guy had quite a bit of land, just for one moment. Yet all that land still wasn't enough, please hear me, to keep him from dying. Indeed, as Tolstoy points out, his love for more led to his death. And notice, that's precisely what these verses teach. Notice, after asserting that everyone dies, the author then elaborates on the destination of one who sets his affection and confidence in money. Notice the psalmist calls it a foolish confidence. Whereas the righteous 
have the Lord as their shepherd. Notice, the unregenerate who trust in riches have death as their shepherd. And when the day of the new creation dawns, the wicked wealthy will find the upright ruling over them in the morning. If this is what I want you to see, notice verse 13. There are not only those who trust in riches, but then there are also those who approve the boasts of the wealthy. In his excellent commentary on the Psalms, Old Testament scholar Jim Hamilton writes this about those in verse 13. He says, Not only do they live for all they can get without regard for life after death, without regard for God, without regard for hell, they celebrate one another for the things they say. They are fools, and yet they treat one another as champions of wisdom who have succeeded in life. And here's, here's the application question that I want to ask us as a church, and that is, who do you treat as champions of wisdom? Is it the scores of wealthy men on Instagram and other social media sites who offer step-by-step -step plans to become wealthy and live extravagant lifestyles? How many, how many young men I have known who when I ask them, what do you want to do for a career? They're like, I just want to make as much money as I can. I just want to get as wealthy as I can. And they give themselves to the pursuit of the pomp and glory of wealth. Is that true of you? Do you champion as the wise those who are succeeding with wealth? Here's what's so dangerous about setting your affections on wealth. As verse 11 makes clear, you can be deceived and think to yourself that your wealth is forever. It can protect you. It can keep you safe. Your houses will be forever. They will not. Wealth cannot purchase redemption. It cannot prevent death. And the other thing is it cannot pass into eternity. Look at verses 16 to the end of the chapter. He says, be not afraid or be not overawed when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. And oh, do we not have so many venues where we can see? I mean, for crying out loud, before Twitter and Instagram, we had lifestyles of what? The rich and famous. Now we have lifestyles of the rich and famous at our phones all the time. He says, do not be overawed or afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. Why? For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. The late pastor Ray Steadman told of how 
he discovered that undertakers are sometimes asked to provide suitable clothing for the deceased to be buried in. And so the undertakers, they make special suits for such occasion that look just like ordinary suits, except with one exception. You know what that one exception is? The suits have no pockets. And you know why? Because as all undertakers know, their customers have no need for pockets, right? And why, and I know it sounds simple, why is that the case? Because no one brings anything into this world and you're not taking anything with you out of this world. And that's the same thing the psalmist is saying in this verses. Notice how clearly the point is made in verse 17. Friend, please hear me. All your goods, all of them, are simply leased, and death ends the tenure. Yet sadly, the love of money can often blind us to this reality. When John D. Rockefeller died, his aide was asked how much he left behind. You know what the aide said wisely? All of it. He left all of it behind. Why? You can't take your wealth with you when you die. And oh, how we need to be reminded of this. I love what John Stott has said. He writes, Possessions are only the traveling luggage of time. They are not the stuff of eternity. It would be sensible, therefore, to travel light. But you know what, faith? You're never going to travel light in this world if you continue to be overawed by the glory of wealth. And I think, I think this could be where many of us are the most tempted. I think for many of us, we can be, we can be overawed by the wealthy. Our affections are drawn to the glory of wealth. We do desire to do well and be thought of well and be praised. So how, so how can you fight such temptation? Well, I believe the sons of Korah have just told us. And that is, it's by seeing that when you are enamored with the pomp of man, the psalmist says twice, you become like a beast. Did you see it there in verse 20 and verse 12? And faith, here is the riddle that the author alluded to in verse 4. You know what the riddle is? It's this. How is man like a beast? That's the riddle of the psalm. How is a man like a cow? How is a man like a horse? How is a man like a beast of the field? And you know what the answer is? He is like a cow. He is like a beast when he rejects this counsel. As he says, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Faith, please hear me. Money is not bad. Wealth is not evil. These are good things, but you know what is bad? The love of money. The love of wealth. Really important. We are to praise God for His good gifts. We're to praise God for His provisions. 
The things in and of themselves are not bad, but your heart being overawed by them, your heart setting your affections on them, desiring the lifestyle, desiring the restaurants, the food, the travel, the expenses, having that be your God, that is evil. As Paul writes in 1 Timothy, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And notice again, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Look, faith, all of us, we have misplaced things. But let us not misplace our affections on money. Indeed, as the author of Hebrews says, let us keep ourselves free from the love of money. And let us daily delight in the truth that we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Amen? For when you truly comprehend the great cost the Lord Jesus paid to save sinners like you, God will be your wealth. Because you know what? You'll realize if I have Christ, I have everything. And I have him for a gazillion, bazillion, million years on a new heavens and a new earth. Indeed, when you count the cost and you consider what Christ has done, you will treasure him above the goods of this world. Faith, may that be true of us. Amen? Let's pray.